Well, good morning, everybody. It's uh, great to be with you again uh, this morning, sharing uh, from God's Word over Zoom. Um, and, and we continue on in the book of Job. This time we're up to the third round of speeches, between, second round of speeches, rather, between the friends and Job. Uh, so as we come to God's Word, let's come before God and ask for his help to understand it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for uh, the book of Job. Uh, thank you that it's part of your word and that you speak to us through it. Please give us understanding ears this morning. Uh, please show, uh, encourage us, comfort us and show us uh, what you want us to take away from it this morning. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, during lockdown, a lot of people have taken up DIY jobs. Uh, sorry, some very creative and useful things to do, including DIY. Uh, things like making furniture. Uh, some people have done more creative things like cooking, making um, uh, uh, things, things, things of that nature. I did buy a batch of sourdough uh, starter in preparation for my new sourdough making career. Uh, but it remains, sadly, it remains sitting in the cupboard unopened. Uh, but the lockdown project that I have come through with has been, well, perhaps slightly less productive, watching K-dramas on Netflix. Uh, it's not without its difficulties. Uh, the dog has a habit of sitting on the end of the bed, so it makes it hard to uh, watch the subtitles. But uh, despite that, Julie and I have persevered. Uh, a show that we've just finished watching is called The Defendant. Uh, it's about a prosecutor called Park Jong-yu uh, who is framed for the murder of his wife and daughter. Uh, he's a victim of a massive cover-up. <clears throat> a former colleague and friend of his um, is prosecuting his case and uh, pushing for the de death penalty. Uh, he's found guilty and it appears that all is lost. Uh, abandoned by his friends, uh, condemned by a corrupt legal system, Park Jong-yu is desperate to prove his innocence. But then unexpectedly, he gains an ally. A young legal aid attorney takes on his case. She argues his case in court. They call witnesses who prove Park Jong-yu's innocence and he ends up being acquitted. In the second round of speeches that we're going to look at today in the book of Job, between Job and his friends, we also see Job fighting to prove his innocence. He believes he's being attacked by God unfairly. He's increasingly feeling rejected and abandoned by his friends who have found him guilty. In pain, cut off from everything that gave his life meaning, Job also longs for someone who can argue his case in court, someone who will stand up and defend him, a redeemer who can prove his innocence before God so that he can stand in God's presence. As we come to, the, to, to round two of the speeches, when Eliphaz stands up and clears his throat and gets ready to drone on again, as the listeners or the readers, we, we kind of left groaning, thinking, oh no, here we go again. Because we're already, sense, we're, we're already left with a, a sense of exhaustion and, and frustration uh, a bit like sitting through a mindlessly boring meeting at work and realising that after an hour and a half that they haven't even got to the main item of business. And a lot of that sense is that, that this 
A lot of that is the sense that this talk fest is going nowhere fast. The friends aren't listening to Job. And Job has given up on listening to the rubbish that's coming out of the friends' mouths. A couple of things worth noting about the speeches that give us a clue about the way that we are to read them. This second round of speeches goes for seven chapters from 15 to 21. Job speaks for four of those chapters. That's more than half. And that reflects the importance of Job's words as compared with the friends. The author wants us to listen to Job much more than to listen to the friends. Secondly, notice as we go along in the speeches that Job spends more time talking to God than he does in, in responding to the friends. And that shows, but the friends spend all their time trying to prove their point to Job. Not a single verse do they talk to God. And that shows us that Job is the one looking for an answer from God. He is the one crying out for relationship. The friends are only interested in their theology and proving their point against Job. But Job is the one who is desperate to find God and to meet with him face to face. In his pain, Job believes that God is pursuing him as his enemy. Not only that, but his friends who are supposed to comfort him, they are also attacking him. We'll look at, the, we'll look at Job's complaint against God shortly. That's a central issue for Job. But firstly, I want to look briefly at what the friends have to say and how Job responds to them. And that's our first point. Instead of helping Job in his distress, Job calls his friends miserable comforters. Well, once again, like the first round of speeches, Eliphaz is the one who starts off. Let's pick up his word. Follow along with me in your Bibles because we're going to be looking at the text as we go. Um, have a look with me at chapter 15 where Eliphaz starts off. 15 verse 1, Eliphaz the Temanite replied, Would a wise person answer with empty notions or fill their belly with a hot east wind? Verse 3, would they argue with useless words, with speeches that have no value? And then verse 5, your sin prompts your mouth, you adopt the tongue of the crafty. Eliphaz sees himself as a wise man who knows the fate of the wicked. Have a look down at verse 20. All his days the wicked man suffers torment, the ruthless man through all the years stored up for him. Because he shakes his fist at God and vaunts himself against the Almighty. Sorry, verse 25. Because he shakes his fist at God and vaunts himself against the Almighty. That's what he accuses Job, uh, Job of doing. So Eliphaz is saying to Job that he is either counted amongst the wicked and being punished for it, or he's in danger of going down that path because of his sin. Job replies in chapter 16. Have a look at 16 verse 2. I have heard many things like these. You are miserable comforters, all of you. Will your long-witted speeches never end? What ails you that you keep on arguing? Well, we'll come back to, to what, what else Job says shortly, but firstly, we'll move on to Bildad. 
Surprisingly, Bildad takes a breather from having a go at Job. Instead, like Eliphaz, he spends a chapter talking about the fate of the wicked. Let's pick it up in chapter 18. Chapter 18, verse 5. The lamp of the wicked is snuffed out. The flame of his fire stops burning. The light of in his tent becomes dark. The lamp beside him goes out. Well, that's Bildad. Then once again, Zophar is the last of the friends to speak. But he really could have saved his breath because it's almost a rerun of what Bildad has just said. The same message that the wicked are punished. Have a look at uh, chapter, 20, uh, chapter 20, verses 27 and 28. Chapter 20, verse 27. The heavens will expose his guilt. The earth will rise up against him. A flood will carry off his house, rushing waters on the day of God's wrath. Such is the fate God allots to the wicked, the heritage appointed for them by God. And with that, we come to the end of the friend's speeches in round two. And the reader is left once again with the depressing sense of going nowhere fast. It's not as if the friends are telling Job anything new. The whole lecture about the wicked suffering God's judgment isn't a revelation to Job because Job was brought up on a diet of, of, of believing and knowing God's justice. In fact, everything the friends have said about retribution theology, the wicked being punished and the righteous being blessed, Job believes all that too. But what Job will not accept is the friend's conclusion that Job is being punished because of his sin. Instead of being comforted by his friends, Job is attacked and left shattered. Have a, have a look back at chapter 16, verse 4. I also could speak like you if I were in your place. I could make fine speeches against you and shake my head against you. But my mouth would encourage you. Comfort from my lips would bring you relief. And then in the one, one of the most moving parts of the speeches, Job pleads with his friends to act like friends and not enemies. Listen to the desperation in Job in chapter 19. In chapter 19, verse 21. Have pity on me, my friends. Have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? You see, Job believes that God is hunting, hunting him like a wounded animal. He's alone, isolated, in pain, and he can't even depend on the support and comfort of his friends. Having miserable comforters as friends is certainly making Job's suffering worse, but it's nothing compared with, the, with having God as his enemy. For Job, that's the whole issue that makes his suffering intolerable. He's lost his children, he's lost his health, but worst of all, for Job, he's lost his God. Our second point is that Job is convinced that God has wronged him and is chasing him down. Have a look at, back at chapter 16, 16 verse 9. God assails me and tears me in his anger and gnashes his teeth at me. My opponent 
fastens on me, his fastens on me his piercing eyes. Then jump down to verse 12. All was well with me, but he shattered me. He seized me by the neck and crushed me. He has made me his target. Verse 13, his archers surround me without pity. He pierces my kidneys and spills my gall on the ground. Quite graphic imagery, isn't it, of God attacking him. As well as Job thinking that God is chasing after him like Mel Gibson rushing at the English soldiers in Braveheart, he's also taken everything away from him in Job's mind. Have a look at chapter 19. Chapter 19, verse 9. He has stripped me of my honour and removed the crown from my head. He has alienated my family from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. Verse 14. My relatives have gone away. My closest friends have forgotten me. My guests and my female servants count me as a foreigner. They look on me as a stranger. Can you feel, friends, a sense of utter isolation and aloneness that Job is feeling here? The experts tell us that grief is always an isolating experience. No matter how many people we might have around us to, to comfort us, there's always a sense of walking through something alone, that no one can enter into our internal pain and share that with us. When Julie and I lost our son Owen, we were very blessed to have a loving team with us in East Asia who didn't hesitate to leave their holiday behind that they were having and come back to be with us, to comfort us. But even having loving friends around us, there was a still a sense of isolation in our pain. But Job didn't have the blessing of supporting friends or family. Imagine his sense of utter isolation, not only from, from the lack of human comfort, but from Job's perspective, uh, God, his rock, his foundation, who had given him purpose and meaning to his whole life, he'd turned against him and was now his enemy. We can almost feel the frustration and sense of betrayal, the anger, the sadness. For Job, there's only one way out. He knows that God isn't treating him as he deserves. He knows he's innocent. And he knows that if only he can get his day in court with God, if only God will listen to him and not crush him, then God the judge will have no choice but to declare him innocent and restore his relationship with his creator. The only hope that Job can see is for someone to take up his case and make God listen. A witness for Job, a redeemer who will champion his cause. And that's our third point. Job wants his case to come before the heavenly courtroom. He wants the evidence of his innocence to be put on public record. Have a look with me at chapter 19, verse 23. Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. So confident is Job that he's innocent, that he wants his words to be carved into a rock forever for posterity that would forever stand as a witness of his innocence. And then Job goes on to say something extraordinary in verse 25. 
I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Job is visualising the courtroom. His redeemer is someone who defends him, like a defence lawyer. Someone who will successfully put his case before God. Then he will be declared innocent and he will stand face to face before God. Not crushed, but now in right relationship with him. Now in the Old Testament, a redeemer is a close relative who defends the rights of a family member. Uh, You may know the story of the book of Ruth. Uh, In in that book, Boaz is a redeemer of of Ruth because he's a a relative. Um, And he ends up marrying her to look after her and to keep her family name. That's doing his duty as a redeemer. Now, apart from the book of Ruth, Whenever the word redeemer appears in the Old Testament, it's always talking about God. The main place it occurs is in the book of Isaiah. Uh, There are 13 times in Isaiah God is called redeemer. Uh, Let's just pick one example, Isaiah 47 verse 4. You don't have to turn to it. That says, Our redeemer, the Lord Almighty is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. Now, Why am I telling telling you this? So what? What I want to suggest here is that in Job 19, Job is saying that God himself will be his redeemer. That God himself will be his redeemer. One more reason why I think verse 25 is referring to God is that Job says, I know that my redeemer lives. I know that he lives. In the Old Testament, God is often described as the living God. It's not a slam dunk argument, but I think verse 25 is a strong hint that this living Redeemer is God himself. Now, some of you may pick up on the, uh, at this point that I've done a, an about face here. Uh, I've changed my tune. Um, if, you, in, if you're in uh, CGs this week and, you're taking, and you were taking notice, uh, you may have noticed that um, in the CG study, I didn't think that the Redeemer was God. I didn't think it was God because Job had just been ranting about how God was his enemy and God had been attacking him. And so I thought it didn't make much sense for God then to become his defender against God. Do you see what I mean? But since then, I've actually changed my mind. On the one hand, it doesn't seem to make much logical sense for for Job to declare that God would suddenly turn from enemy to defender, to redeemer. But then again, Job has been wrestling with that kind of tension all along, hasn't he? On the one hand, God is unjustly chasing him down. But then on the other hand, he hangs on to this belief that justice will win out in the end and that God will do the right thing and declare him innocent. And here we see Job's faith in God breaking through. 
Despite the evidence of his desolation and brokenness, Job is grasping onto a belief in the faithfulness of the God he knows to stand up and come to his defence in court. And at the end of the day, Job will get what he yearns for. Not just an end to his suffering, not death and oblivion like we saw in chapter 3, but verse 27 he, will, he longs to see God with his own eyes. To see God with his own eyes. That's a cry of faith, isn't it? The words of a man who knows that what he needs more than anything else, more than, more than his pain to end, more than, more than an end to his suffering, is to find rest in God and to be with him face to face. Now Job didn't expect that to happen quickly. It seems that he may not have even expected that to happen this side of the grave. Have a look with me again at verse 26. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. So Job is saying it may not happen until this wasting body of his is dead and buried. Job didn't know when he was going to be declared innocent by God. He didn't know how he was going to be declared innocent by God, especially if he happened to die first. Now this probably isn't expressing some belief in, in a bodily resurrection because in the Old Testament there was no real sense of what happened after the grave, no clear idea of a resurrection. But it is expressing a confidence that God will make things right in the end. Even death won't stop that from happening. Job was isolated, alone, rejected by his friends and in his mind being hunted down by God. But still for Job, God was his only hope a final hope of being restored in relationship with him. A hope of God standing up in court as his redeemer and defending his innocence. So that God is no longer his enemy, but his friend. Now if the redeemer is God himself, Job is, is saying that his hope is in God, in effect, standing up and defending Job against God, who is apparently angry at Job. On the one hand, that seems an absurd picture, doesn't it? Um, completely illogical, which is why at first I rejected the possibility of God being Job's redeemer. But then if we fast forward in the story to, uh, um, of, of God's dealings with humanity, we find the depressing reality not of a Job who wrongly imagined God's hand being against him, but of people, in fact all people, who actually stand as God's enemies because of our rebellion. Eliphaz spoke more truly than he knew. He was trying to show Job that he couldn't be in the right before God when he said in chapter 15 verse 14, what are mortals that they could be pure or those born of, wo of woman that they could be righteous? Now at that point, 
Eliphaz was speaking like the Apostle Paul in Romans 1. When Paul said that there is no one righteous, not even one. Humanity was left without hope, enemies of God. But then God himself provided the answer by sending another redeemer, Jesus, God's own son. God himself intervened, defending us against God's anger. Like Job's court scene, but this time the Redeemer didn't just defend us. He brought us peace with God with his own life. I want to finish off with a verse from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 describes Jesus as our great high priest. A priest is someone who stands between or who goes between us and God, who acts as a mediator. Hebrews 7 verse 25 says this, He is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Because he always lives to intercede for them. That means he prays for us to God the Father forever. He never stops looking after us and defending us. Friends, I don't know about you, but during these last past few weeks, I think we've become more prone to a kind of low level of anxiety. And I suspect that's true for many of us. Because it looked like things were getting better didn't it it looked like we had uh, finally got coronavirus beaten Uh, things were getting back to normal but now with this second wave we we just don't know what's around the corner do we we can't predict what next week will be like the things that we used to rely on have either disappeared or or they're in doubt there's just no, no assurance that, that next week, uh, next month, th- things are going to be okay. Job must have felt like that, but, but amplified a thousand times. And for him, the crushing blow that almost destroyed him was, was the belief that, that, that not only circumstances, but God was against him too. God was his enemy. But we have a Redeemer. No matter how pear-shaped things go, perhaps you're losing your job or, or there's, there's a prospect of that. Perhaps worrying about your family, anxious about parents or, or children or yourself getting COVID perhaps. Even if that foundation crumbles and, and things we rely on continue to shake and fall down, we have a rock to go to we have a safe place we have a foundation where we belong a good God who loves us who provided his own son to redeem us for God to defend us against the anger of God and now just like Job's case was, was, he wanted his case to be inscribed in rock forever. 
our names are written in the book of life that stands through eternity as our hope that will last. Amen.